0: We'll open your Bibles to Mark chapter 12, Mark chapter 12, and as I used to hear sometimes when we began theology class, gentlemen and ladies, let's wade into the deep end of the pool. Mark chapter 12, three simple verses in this encounter between Jesus and the Jewish leaders and Jesus and the crowds on the Temple Mount on Tuesday of Passover week in the final week of His earthly life. Mark chapter 12, let me start with verse 35. And Jesus began to say, as he taught in the temple, How is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself said in the Holy Spirit, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand. Until I put your enemies beneath your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So, in what sense is he his son? And the crowd enjoyed listening to him. The longer you're a believer, the longer you're a Christian, a servant, a disciple of Jesus Christ, the deeper becomes your capacity to understand the magnificence and beauty found in the nuances and the complexities of theology. As we've talked about long and many times before, theology and understanding the gospel is much like having or owning a mechanized Automatic self-winding watch. I, I happen to love self-winding watches. I've been to Switzerland and been to a watch factory and seen how they make them. It is amazing and intricate. There are mainsprings and, and gears and tiny little parts that, that, are, that have to be handled with finute tweezers. And you put all that together, hundreds, sometimes thousands of these on the back of a watch. But ultimately, the face tells you what time it is. Any theological concept on its face will give you wonder and depth and it'll tell you what time it is. But if you'll drill down and go deeper, if you'll open up the back and see the nuances and the complexities, you will find an amazing satisfaction and joy. That's theology. The simplest understanding of theology, especially the theology of Christ and the gospel, can lead you to a saving relationship with himself. Yet, if you'll deeply and richly apprehend the depth and the breadth and the nuances and the intricacies and the the complexities of theological concepts, you will find delight. You'll be thrilled. You will be on a journey of satisfying adventure and theological growth that will bring you pure pleasure the rest of your life. God loves to be investigated. In fact, that's, that's the essence of worship is to look into and to discover more and more of God and what He's like. Well, nowhere is this truer than the study of Jesus Christ, what we call Christology. Any study of Christology, if you begin at the very rudimentary uh, Christology books that you might find, or even simple theological constructs or or volumes, the very first thing you run into when you're studying the person and nature and work of Christ is what we do with Christ who he is, his nature, his ontology, his being. By this, we mean coming to grips with the reality that Jesus is both God and man, fully divine and fully human, truly divine and truly human. This union of deity and humanity in Jesus from Nazareth is called by theologians, and this is an important word that you need to know, you need to own, it's called the hypostatic union. Hypostatic union. That's H-Y-P-O-S-T-A-T-I-C. Hypostatic union. Now, where does this come from? What is this term about? It's an important term, and if you read anything on Christology, you will come to grips with this term. It comes from the Greek word for substance. Hypostasis. And it means individual essence, what he's like in his essence, in his person, in his personality. So when we talk about the hypostatic union, we're using a technical term for the unified personality of Jesus Christ, a personality that's that's defined by the incarnation and in the incarnation by the second person of the Trinity, wherein, whereby the Son of God, God himself in human flesh became a complex, unique person with both a human and divine nature. Now, that's difficult enough to swallow, but probably the most articulate demonstration or articulation of this, of this doctrine was uh, written in AD 451 in the Council of Chalcedon. And it's, a, it's actually a definition that we still use today in theology books. It's several sentences long, I'm going to read it to you. Just hold on. Hold on and listen with your heart. Ready? Following the fathers, we all with one accord, this is the Council of Chalcedon, teach men to acknowledge one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, at once complete in the Godhead and complete in manhood, truly God and truly man, consisting also of a reasonable soul and body One substance of one substance with the Father as regards to his Godhead, and at the same time of one substance with regard to his manhood, like us in all respects apart from sin, as regards to his Godhead, to the Godhead begotten of the Father before the ages, but yet as regards to his manhood begotten for us men and for our salvation of the Virgin Mary, the God bearer. One and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, recognized in two natures, this is important, without confusion, without change, without separation, and without division. The distinction of the natures being in no way annulled by the union but rather the characteristics of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one person and one substance, not as a parted or separated into two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten God, the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ. Even as the prophets from the earliest times spoke of Him and our Lord Jesus Christ Himself taught us and the creed of the fathers has handed down to us in quote. That's an amazing theological formulation, but it could take you a long time to work through each phrase, and each phrase is pregnant with substance and meaning. But at the center of that are are three descriptors, four rather. He is without confusion in his nature, without change, without division, and without separation. He does not have a schizophrenic nature. It is beautifully one in substance, both divine and human, and that's a mystery that you and I will never be able to unpack this side of eternity, and my suspicion is we'll never be able to pack it throughout all eternity, but just worship the reality of it. Think about that definition. How intricate, how detailed, how nuanced. Full of explanations, affirmations, denials, and nuancing. However... Here in Mark chapter 12, verses 35 to 37, Jesus provides and explains his own nature and the hypostatic union, get this, in only three verses, by only asking two questions, and by quoting one Old Testament verse. His simplicity and the depth of his simplicity is amazing. I was, I was talking with my, my son, Luke, who was uh, playing guitar this morning uh, on the way in, and and we had a great talk about this very issue. That This is simple and complex at the same time. It, is the problem that the Bible is, is not perspicuous, not clear? What, why do we have trouble with these kind of things? And we kind of came to an illustration that I thought was helpful. If you, were to, if, you, if you had a relatively very base understanding of music, and we were to hand you a, a, a concerto by Mozart, you would look at that, And know what it was, but you couldn't really comprehend or understand that without years of study and application of of music and theory and your acumen and being able to play those songs and those instrumentations. Well, that's a little bit like the hypostatic union. You can get a grasp on it immediately, but it should take, in in a wonderful way, the rest of our lives to study and appreciate this doctrine. Remember the scene. Jesus is teaching and being challenged on the Temple Mount. This area is about the size of 15 football fields on a big uh, marble slab outside of the temple itself. Tens of thousands of people are crowded into this area. I was watching an old rerun of a, of a football game uh, this last week because there is no sport, are no sports on at all right now. And in this old classic game, at the end, this team upset the other team. And literally, in a matter of, of moments, even seconds, tens of thousands of people in the crowd all descended on the football field. And it was a swarm of people. That's like this. Imagine tens of thousands of people just swarming and thronging together on a temple mount and in full center focus is this blue-collar, uneducated, upshot theologian, according to the Jewish leaders from Nazareth, who's now come on their all-star weekend and is claiming all the attention and they didn't like it. It's been an eventful day. Jesus is challenged over and over, even in winning every debate decisively. And the other gospel writers tell us he was also teaching parables and teaching lessons in between these challenges. But in three verses here that we'll be looking at today, three simple verses, Jesus becomes the questioner. It's time for the Jewish leadership to pass his theological Exam At the end of verse 34, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. Now it was his turn to be the quizzer. In the exam he gives these men, perhaps some women, the crowds who have now thronged around him, the the question that he presses, and it's a pass-fail question, it's a pass-fail test, is who he really is. Who am I? Who is the Son of Man? The issue is his nature. And with this passage, we come to grips with a concept which I I hope you're familiar with in part, and you'll be more so hopefully after this morning, and that is his own hypostatic union, the, the union of the divine and the human. Just hang on for a minute, and I hope that Jesus' clarity will help us all in a moment. In fact, think about this. The incarnate, Hypostatic union, Jesus Himself. He is the hypostatic union. The hypostatic union Himself is going to teach about the hypostatic union in theology. It's incredible. So, all of us are students today in the classroom of the master teacher, the master theologian, the one who not only wrote theology but is living theology. And we'll listen to Him teach us about the hypostatic union. So this is really more like a lecture from Jesus we're going to take notes on. And we'll find together the hypostatic union according to Jesus, three corroborations. The hypostatic union according to Jesus, and we'll listen to him give us three corroborations. That's an important word. A corroboration is something that you compare to something else. You corroborate it with with other data. He is going to teach us about himself from a psalm. He's going to corroborate his very existence, the hypostatic union in the New Testament, fully explained in his person, fully realized, but in the Old Testament, fully prophesied in one verse. So we'll look at the hypostatic union according to Jesus, and our outline will follow three corroborations. The first is in verse 35. The Christ will be the son of David. Very simple. The Christ will be the son of David. And Jesus began to say, as he taught in the temple, and when we say in the temple, remember, we're not talking about in the temple complex, but in that that large area, 15 football fields of of rock on which everyone would gather to, to buy sacrifices, to bring their sacrifices, to stage their sacrifices. And as we saw on the first day of the week, to have commerce, Jesus says, how is it, That the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David. So far on this Tuesday of Passover week, our Lord has been mostly on defense. He's been pressed on areas where the Jewish leaders thought they could publicly trap Him. They could embarrass Him. They could discredit Him. They could have Him say something that was theologically errant for which they could execute Him. Ultimately, they're trying to find justification to kill Him. So they bait him over and over, staccato, one after another, with questions like, who gave you the authority to claim what you claim? What about taxes? What, what, what's, the, what's the resurrection? Do you believe in it? Is there such a thing? What's the foremost commandment? After asking and asking and asking, and these are only the questions that Mark records. There were others that Matthew and Luke add in as well. After all of this asking, Finally, there's a silence. Why? Because look at the end of verse 34. As we said, no one, after he talked about the greatest commandments, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. They lost. No one could best this uneducated theologian's theology. It's incredible. Uneducated, by the way, according to the standards of the Sanhedrin. Certainly not uneducated because of who he actually was and is. Now, Jesus now turns the tables. He starts being the the questioner, the inquisitor. He's going to ask questions. And his purpose now is, is not only to silence his enemies, but now is to do something that's incredible and is going to have consequences in just a few days. Theological consequences for you and me, even this morning. And that is, he is going to assert that he is not only the Son of David, but actually God incarnate, God in flesh. He's going to claim to be God very clearly. Jesus' question, actually, there's a couple, but he asks a, a, a first and then a second with a psalm in between informs us that the title Son of David was rightly interpreted by by the scribes of the day. He actually gives them some grace. He says, your scribes have taught. And then he says, the, uh, the Messiah would be the Son of David, from the line of David. How is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the Son of David? Now, quick word study. The word Christ, Christos, in the New Testament is the same exact word translated as the word Messiah in the Old Testament so much so that it's translated Messiah in the first verse of the New Testament. The word for Christ is translated Messiah. It's the same thing. The Old Testament Messiah, that's the New Testament Christ. So every time you hear or read the term Christ in the New Testament, know that that's a a designation for Jesus as the Jewish Messiah. It's loaded, a loaded term. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The record of the genealogy of Jesus, and our English translation says, Jesus the Messiah, the Son of David. It's actually the the term Christos. Jesus the Christ Christ. The son of David, the very first thing we learn about the Christ in the New Testament is he is indeed the son of David. And Jesus affirms that the scribes rightly say that the Christ is the son of David. Makes perfect sense. It's also the right way to start the New Testament if you're going to write about the Christ. He was to be a descendant of David and David's lineage, but... Jesus is here about to advance their concept of the Messiah. They knew and thought that he should and would be the son of David, but more than the physical seed of David, much, much more, he is going to be more than an earthly conqueror than they expected, and he's going to add to their understanding if they would accept it. Son of David was shorthand then for the long-expected Messiah let so rewind the tape a little bit. On his way to Jerusalem, Jesus is coming out of Jericho. He stops to heal blind Bartimaeus. And in Mark 10, 48, we studied, many were sternly telling blind Bartimaeus to be quiet, but he kept crying out all the more. How was he addressing Jesus? Son of David, have mercy on me. This blind beggar understood that he was crying out to the Messiah, to the Christ, Back to the scribes in verse 35. Notice that he affirms the scribes. It's interesting. As great expounders of the law, religious experts of Judaism, they got this right. You're right. The Messiah is going to be a son, a descendant of King David. And again, a quick clue for our Bible reading is whenever you read Christ in the New Testament, understand that that's the Messiah of the Old Testament. Whenever you read Messiah in the Old Testament, understand that that will be the Christ, Jesus, in the New. Every Jew believed that the Messiah, or the Christ, would be a physical descendant of King David. That was common. You can't find evidence that anyone doubted that. Their conclusion and hope were that the Christ would be a great military leader who would deliver Israel from anyone who oppressed them. And at this time, that would have been the Romans' From Rome, the the Caesars, their mediated rule through the local officials. They believed that he would be a great military conqueror, a king. And they were right to believe that. But they didn't believe enough about the coming king, nor did they understand the timing of his kingdom. Jesus is about to show them from their own Hebrew Bibles that the Messiah would indeed be a human descendant of David, but he will also be, drumroll, God himself. And no one was prepared for this truth. Jesus confronts their shallow and their sloppy hermeneutics, their shallow and sloppy interpretation of one of the great messianic psalms. So, the first corroboration, he says, you're right. The Old Testament does affirm that the Christ will be the son of David. That's that's the first understanding of the hypostatic union. That's another way of saying he will be fully human. He will be one of David's descendants. Secondly, though, our second corroboration is the Christ will be the God of David. The Christ will be the God of David. David. Verse 36, David himself said in the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. A couple of things jump off the page when you look at this verse. First, Jesus makes a claim that ought to get your attention, it ought to arrest and stop our attention. He is talking specifically, think about this, specifically about the dual authorship of Scripture. David wrote Psalm 110, which he quotes, but he also says that the Holy Spirit is the one who moved him to say that. Just as Peter wrote, the Holy Spirit moved men along in inspiration. He affirms, The dual authorship of Scripture telling us that David wrote, think about this, in intimate union with the Holy Spirit and under the controlling influence of the Holy Spirit. Let me me say that again. David wrote with intimate union with the Holy Spirit and David wrote under the controlling influence of the Holy Spirit. This is one of the most important verses undergirding our doctrine of inspiration. David wrote Psalm 110, which is quoted here, but Jesus says he wrote that by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Second thing to notice is this is a quotation of Psalm 110, one verse, verse 1. Psalm 110, think about this. Here's some trivia for you Psalm 110 is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. It's quoted over 33 times directly or by inference. We'll take a tour, a quick tour of some of those passages in just a moment. His point is very careful. A simple and careful and detailed reading, if you'll give your real attention, scribes, Jewish people who are listening, to Psalm 110 verse 1, He says, it indicates clearly that the Christ, the Messiah, will be more than a man. In fact, the hypostatic union is laid out in this verse. And the hypostatic union, Jesus himself, was standing before them, teaching him about the hypostatic union from Psalm 110 at that very moment. Now, in order to understand this fully, I need to give you a little insight into the hebrew text then we'll go to the greek text which will ultimately end you in your your english text first of all the hebrew text is very interesting in psalm 110 says the lord said to my lord now in hebrew that's two different words for lord the first is yahweh now yahweh said to adonai is what it says in the hebrew two different words The idea is that the Lord Yahweh said to my, to David's Lord. The Lord said to my Lord. So God Yahweh said to David's Lord, who was not Yahweh, was someone else. It's really important. God in heaven said to David's Lord, Adonai, a, a different designation for a Lord In other words, David is addressing the Messiah and his Lord, one of his descendants. Jesus is implying a very clear reality that the Messiah is to be a man, but he's going to explain that the Messiah will also be God as well. Just a little footnote. We'll see this in a moment. This was so clear to the audience That later in Mark 13, they're going to bring this conversation back up to Jesus and say that made you blasphemous and worthy of death because you claim to be God. This is a critical moment in the final week of our Lord. It's at this very exact moment that Jesus unveils to the crowds that he is not merely a good teacher from Nazareth. He's far more. He is God in human flesh standing before them. This just blows my mind. The presence of God in the Holy of Holies just a hundred yards or so from where he's teaching is in the temple and the presence of God standing before them in human flesh. John will say later that our hands held, our eyes beheld the the very word of God. Jesus is showing that the Messiah is more than they thought. And, by the way, Jesus is a master exegete. No one is a better interpreter of the Scriptures than Jesus because he's the author. He's pointing out that David called the Messiah both his Lord and his Son. You see that? The Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord, one of my descendants. His descendant, his Son, would also be his superior, his Adonai, his Lord, Even more incredible, because the term Lord or Adonai regularly refers to God, we understand that he is using a double attribution of these terms to God, very God. This suggested that David believed that the Messiah would indeed be divine. Jesus affirms that. And Jesus does not distinguish between the two Hebrew terms, interestingly. In the, that's the Hebrew. The scribes would have known the Hebrew. Obviously, Jesus knew the Hebrew. No doubt the Jews had known the Hebrew who were, who were hearing him. This is a very famous psalm. But he uses the term kurios, or Lord, both times. The Lord said to my Lord. He flattens it out and says, God said to God. Really interesting. He could have quoted the Hebrew he went straight to the Greek. Kurios said to Kurios. Lord said to Lord. God said to Messiah slash God. Wow. Yes, the Christ would be a physical human ancestor of David, but also the Son of God and thus divine Then he quotes the part of Psalm 110 that speaks of the Lord sitting on the Lord's right hand. This is so important. We fly by this. We don't understand how pervasive it is in the New Testament. This is so critically important to our understanding of who Jesus is, what he's doing now, and why he's there in the place he is now. He says he will sit down, we know, on the right hand, and we know he'll have a footstool. This would become a theological foundation for the writers of the rest of the New Testament. To sit at the right hand of a sovereign king in the ancient Near East, and in this case of God himself, is to sit with equal authority and equal privilege. It was to assume an equality with the one on the throne. You don't think it was a mistake that James and John just a few days earlier had asked Jesus to sit on his right and left? Listen to what some of the New Testament writers, and this is just, just enjoy this this quick tour. You can write these down, but enjoy this. You hear Psalm 110 all the time in your New Testaments. Do you recognize where it comes from? Hebrews chapter one, verse three. And he, Jesus, is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature Talking about his deity. He upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. So, in a text where the writer of the Hebrews is talking about the deity of Christ, he actually affirms, Psalm 110 affirms, that he is God. One of my favorite, Acts 2, verse 33 down to 36. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was it not David who ascended into heaven, but it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, "The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand." This is Peter preaching, "Until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet." Then he says this. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord, that's God, that's Kyrios, and Christ, Messiah, from David, from heaven, this Jesus whom you crucified. When you begin to see that these are often descriptions and explanations of Psalm 110, you understand that they are proofs for Christ's hypostatic union, and his deity and also his humanity being a son of David. Romans 8, 34. Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. That's just not a description of who he is. That's a fulfillment of Psalm 110. Colossians 3, 1. Therefore, you've been raised up with Christ. If you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, guess what? Seated at the right hand of God. Ephesians 1. He brought about these things in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated Jesus at his right hand in heaven above all rule and authority, above all power, dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in the one to come. Back to Hebrews chapter 10. By this, verse 10, we will have been sanctified. We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once for all. Every priest stands daily, ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting. From that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not, this is not baptism or regeneration. This is an affirmation that baptism is, is a, a, a designation or a synonym for your conversion. The removal, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who, he's rose from the dead, he's no longer here, Peter says, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to him. This is more than just simply those sitting at the right hand of God. The writer of the Hebrews says he's waiting for that day when, look it back at verse 36, until I put your enemies beneath your feet. This is speaking of the future reality that the Messiah will exercise in total subjection of all enemies on the planet. But one day, the great enemy of death. Jesus uses the figure of a footstool. Borrowing from Psalm 110, 110 verse 1, of him sitting on the throne with his feet on a footstool. Don't think of a recliner with a little ottoman and you're sitting back with popcorn watching television, television and your feet are kicked up. The, throne, the footstool was interesting. The throne was typically elevated with longer legs. The footstool is so your feet didn't dangle. It was a part of the, the picture of reigning and ruling as a king on a throne. He is on such an exalted throne that his feet needed a footstool. That's the point, and that becomes a demonstration of how he is going to subjugate the entire world to his rule. 1 Corinthians 15, back to Psalm 110. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 24. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the God the Father, when he has abolished all rule and authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy, enemy will be, that will be abolished is death, for he has put all things in subjection under his feet. A direct reference to Psalm 110. This moment on the Temple Mount is extremely important, eternally significant. Jesus' theology and teaching would be a serious bone in the throat of the Jews. And we we say, well, is he he really claiming to be God? Is, is is, Is he being that specific? Let's ask the people who heard him. Turn over to Mark chapter 14, verse 61. Jesus is challenged by the high priest. He kept silent, did not answer. Again, the high priest was questioning him, saying, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Great Blessed, the Blessed One? Jesus said, I am. A statement Uh, as a translation of the, the word Yahweh, I am, and you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. He goes back again to Psalm 110 and says, this is what's going to happen, and I am going to come from that throne to judge the world. How do they understand him? Look at verse 63. Tearing his clothes the high priest said what further need do we have of witnesses you have heard the blasphemy how it does how does it seem to you what do you think he's saying and they all condemned him to be deserving of death some began to spit at him and to blindfold him to beat him with their fists and to say to him prophesy or prophesy now and the officers received him with slaps In the face. We may have questions. You may debate was Jesus really claiming to be God when he said, David wrote, The Lord God said to my Lord, who is my descendant, and God himself, sit at my right hand. Make no mistake, his original hearers heard exactly what we think Jesus is teaching in this passage. I am God, he says. I am the descendant of David, and I'm the son of God. He is unmistakably teaching that he is indeed the Lord that David wrote about, making himself out to be divine. He, in a strange way, is David's son, but he's also David's God, David's Lord. The Christ will be the God of David. There's a third corroboration in verse 37. The hypostatic union according to Jesus has three corroborations. The Christ will be the son of David. The Christ will be the God of David. And thirdly, therefore, almost like a syllogism, therefore, the Christ will be the son of David and son of God, fully God and truly human. You can say fully God and fully human, truly God and truly human. It's all the same. He concludes in verse 37. David himself calls him Lord. His point is David calls one of his offspring Adonai. He calls him God. And Jesus is claiming to be that descendant. Therefore, he is that God. He is Adonai. Gives me chills to think about. So he asked him in the end, have you figured it out? In what sense is he his son? This was so obvious. He asked a question that he just answered. He is his son in that he is a physical descendant. He is his God in that he addressed him as Lord. The Messiah, the Christ, is understood as David's Lord rather than merely his son. Jesus is clearly saying that David should be understood as asserting that Yahweh invites the Messiah to sit at his right hand because he's God. Wow. Logic is unmistakable. If the Messiah was David's God, then the Messiah must be God. Therefore, the Messiah is not just David's son. He is God's son. Make no mistake. In the ancient Near East, in that culture, a father would never call his son Lord. Children were inferiors. Literally property of the family. This was completely out of kilter with the family structure. Yet, the scribes had not noticed in all of their exegesis, in all of their teaching, in their memorization, in their articulation of this psalm, they had never noticed that David looks at this one who is to be his son and calls his son his Lord and his God. This is a declaration that the Messiah is more than man, but surely man, truly God, the God-man we could spend the rest of the afternoon. I, 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 let me just blitz through some of this. Fully God, fully man. Fully man, fully God. I mean, he's human. He had a human mother. I have passages for all this that I'll, I uh, don't have time to go through. Luke 1, Galatians 4, he had a human mother. He had a human body. Uh, he looked like a man. He possessed flesh and blood. He grew. He asked questions. He increased in wisdom. He prayed. He was tempted in Matthew 4. He learned obedience in Hebrews 5. He hungered. He thirsted. He was weary. He slept. He had compassion. He was angered and grieved. He wept. He experienced joy. He was troubled. He sweat great drops of blood. He suffered. He bled. He died. He was buried. He was human. He was a man. But the New Testament also tells us he was fully God. He's omniscient in John three thirteen. He's omnipotent in Matthew 28, 18. Omnipotent over disease, over Satan, over demons, over men, over nature, over traditions, over the Sabbath, over the temple, over death itself, over physical death, spiritual death. He is omniscient. He knew the fickleness of the crowds in John 22, 23, and 25. He knew the problem of the disciples before they even said it in Luke 9 he knew the whereabouts of Nathanael in John 148 he knew the history of the Samaritan woman he knew the wickedness of the scribes and the Pharisees he knew the true nature of Judas he receives worship in Matthew 410 he from the angels receives it from the wise man from the leper from Jewish rulers from a heartbroken mother from the mother of James and John in Matthew 20, from the ma- maniac of Gadara back in Mark 5, from the man born blind in John 9, from Thomas, from the woman at the empty tomb, from his disciples, he receives worship. He also forgives sin, we saw in Mark chapter 2. He possesses all authority in Matthew 7. He's the source of life itself. He's the creator of all things, Colossians 1.16 tells us. He's the preserver of all things alone can meet all our needs in John 7:37 he receives our prayers in Acts 7:59 he's the final judge he is both lord and glory and king of kings Revelation 19 the new testament is full beyond overflowing with descriptions of Jesus as fully truly man and fully truly divine god Back to Mark 12, 37. James Addison, excuse me, James Addison Alexander wrote in 1858, how is it Jesus is at once David's superior and David's inferior, son and sovereign? The only key to this enigma is the twofold nature of the Messiah as taught even In the Old Testament, end quote. The hypostatic union wasn't invented by the reformers or by a Chalcedon who began to talk about the the two natures existing in one substance in Christ. This goes all the way back to David. David saw that this would be the case. When the people heard this, they were astonished. They were dumbfounded. How could this carpenter from Galilee be an expert in the law, a master exegete, and claim that he is the fulfillment of the God-man David predicted in Psalm 110 verse 1? What does this mean? Well, again, we don't have to speculate. Be sure... They were very happy to watch Jesus put the scribes in their place. They were no fans of the scribes who were pompous and arrogant. We'll find out that they like to, what the scribes like to walk around with the robes and be appreciated and looked up to and greeted with with, uh, uh, father and doctor or whatever. Mark 15, verses 6 to 15, tell us that they the crowd who appreciated Jesus words now would indeed be fickle and reject him it's a very interesting footnote that mark gave, gives us and we need to understand what it means and what it doesn't mean and a large crowd the large crowd that's a thronging crowd maybe tens of thousands of people around there enjoyed listening to him literally they heard him with glad hearts They enjoyed the argument. They enjoyed his winning. They liked his logic. But those same people in Mark 15, verses 6 and following, would be crying, give us Barabbas and crucify Jesus. Some of the people in that crowd, it's hard to imagine, some of those people would have been those To whom Jesus had given health from being sick, perhaps given sight to those who were blind, hearing to the deaf, peace from those who had been demon possessed. I kind of wonder if Lazarus or others were there whom he gave life from the grave. But still, the majority turned against him. All the evidence in the world. Is no substitute for the work of God in the heart. They heard him sweetly, gladly, pleasantly. But to hear and understand him and to believe him are two different things. Think of this you and I have far more evidence than they ever had, far more evidence. We have a finished, completed Bible. We're surrounded by evidences of grace in those who love Christ, whose lives have been changed. We have no excuse not to receive and believe the truth of the hypostatic union that he is truly God and truly man and as such is the only one who can represent us to God and the only one who can represent God to us knowing fully both natures. Job says in Job 9, Oh, that there were a man that could lay his hand on God and me, a mediator, an umpire to help us come together. And then 1 Timothy chapter 2 says, Jesus is a man. The man who became that prophecy. Listen, the hypostatic union is no mere theological theory It is the very essence of Jesus and without understanding that you can never be a faithful disciple. It's simple and deep at the same time, isn't it? Profound and simple all at the same moment. Don't miss the fact that Jesus is saying that David in the Old Testament actually prophesied that the Messiah would be Lord, would be Adonai, would be God, and also would be his son by, by, by um, genealogy, which means he would be human. You have the hypostatic union in Psalm 110, and Jesus, the hypostatic union, teaching on it here at the temple. We have books. Theologians have written tomes on the hypostatic union, and Jesus explains it with one verse and two questions in three verses. <laughs> Can I ask you three questions? Three takeaway questions. Do you do you believe in the hypostatic union? Maybe I should say, will you believe in the hypostatic union? This is not an optional theological proposition. You either, if you have a Jesus who is not fully God and not fully man. You have an unbiblical Jesus. You have a different Jesus that Paul describes the Corinthians having in 2 Corinthians 11. Do you believe in the hypostatic union? Does this occupy your meditations and your thoughts? Secondly, do you hear him? Do you hear Jesus gladly? Or do you hear him with the same fickleness as the crowds? I was at... um, I was a college pastor in Los Angeles. And I, I'm not a I'm not a great speaker or preacher or theologian, but there was a there was a guy coming from UCLA, and he came for several weeks, and uh he would ask me questions week after week after week. And one day it was clear that he was antagonistic. He was a gracious enough guy, but he just said, yeah, I don't buy it. I don't believe it. And finally, I, I asked him at the end of the semester, I said, he asked me a series of questions again. I said, can I ask you, if you don't believe any of this, why are you coming? He says, well, I like to hear you talk. You like to hear me talk. He says, actually, you have a southern accent that's pleasing to my ear. I thought, well, okay, I guess I got that going for me anyway. <laughs> These people liked to hear Jesus talk. But they didn't believe what he taught. Are you fickle or do you believe it? And then lastly, will you make the study of Christ a lifetime ambition starting now? This, this should, this should be just seed on the fertile soil of your heart that you want to grow. What a God, what a man, what a savior. I want to know more. I want to study him more. Christianity is fundamentally all about the person of Jesus Christ. He is amazing and we're called to be amazed. There is nothing, there should be never anything more interesting to a Christian than Jesus. So devote your life to following and serving and studying and knowing and worshiping and adoring him. That's the starting point of the gospel and that is the never gotten to finish line. It's our goal in the gospel. Do you know him? Do you believe who he is and what he did? This puts the cross in interesting perspective, doesn't it? This wasn't just a Galilean from Nazareth who died on the cross. This was God in flesh Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? People have given Charles Wesley a lot of grief over the years about that line and said it was too much. Is it really? It's the same uh, thought where um, Mark Lowry's Christmas song, when he says to Mary, when you kiss the little baby, you've kissed the face of God. Is that not true? Let me beg you, let me invite you. Run to the God-man. Receive him as your master, your kurios, your Lord, your Savior, the one who knows your heart, the one who can answer your needs, the one who can give you only what you, you desperately need to be satisfied by believing the good news that he gave his life for your sins, rose from the grave, and offers you eternity with him in heaven. Please, you can do that right now. You can ask Christ to be your Lord, your master, submit to him and say, I want to be your adopted child. And by faith, he will grant you that adoption. If you have questions about that, you can call our church. You can, you can send us an email. We'd love to interact with you in any way we can. So grateful for all of you who have sacrificed so much to make these Sunday mornings enriching and what they are. I pray that the Lord takes his word, drives it deep into your heart, and it bears fruit that remains.